Welcome to Murder Bucket, the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Tuesday, and that means another episode on the cold case road trip. If you're joining us for the first time, you might not know what that is. Let me explain. The Cold Case Road Trip is a 28-episode series that explores a cold case in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and five of the inhabited territories. Tonight, we are on stops 13 and 14, and we will be traveling to South Carolina and Florida. Now, before we head into tonight's episode, every week, we do what's called a week-slash-weekend recap. I usually post a Instagram story and a Twitter post asking you guys to let me know how your week was going. I want to know the ins and the outs, the good and the bad. But be sure to let me know if you don't want this information shared in any of our episodes. My weekend wasn't too bad. My husband and I and our friend Noah, who lives with us, Um, worked on cleaning up our yard. We have been unable to really do a lot of spring cleaning outside for the past two years because in 2019, our house actually caught on fire. Um, The neighbor's tree got struck by lightning and the lightning surged to the ground and hit our propane line, which caught the back of our house on fire. So the majority of 2019 through January and February of 2020, We were actually not in our house while it was getting repaired. And then in February of 2020, I gave birth to our daughter. So most of 2020 was with a newborn. and We couldn't really like put her down for us to work in the yard. And it's really hard to do a lot of extensive yard work with just one person. So this year has actually been really good because we can set up our camping tent in the driveway, which I mentioned last week, and have her kind of in there with some toys and some snacks. And she's pretty contained. We don't have to worry about her falling or getting hurt or, you know, running away or anything like that. So while we were cleaning up, we um, have this electric hedge trimmer. Um, to kind of obviously cut all the hedges and shape everything and kind of kill the weeds and stuff like that. Anyways, our friend Noah was using it and he went over a big weed that I guess was a little bit too big for the hedge trimmers. So they got kind of caught up and kind of like flicked up a little bit, which then kicked his hand off of the guard and the little handle he was holding on to. And unfortunately, it did clip his fingers. He got his index finger and a little bit of his middle finger. And he actually didn't notice at first until he realized that his hand and his fingers were getting a little bit warm and then realized that he had actually cut his fingers really bad. So dropped everything, got him in the car, drove him to the emergency room. And because of the COVID restrictions here in our area, Um, Nobody's actually allowed to go in with him to the emergency room unless he was a minor, which he isn't. So I ended up just coming home and getting some updates from him and then eventually going back and getting him. 
Um, he did get about three or four stitches in his index finger and only had to get like super glue in his middle finger. But he seems to be good now. Hopefully that won't happen again. Well, enough about me. Let's go check out and see what you guys have been up to. On Instagram, it looks like the Chaotic Neutral podcast said that they did a makeup look on themselves to look like a cheetah. Please post a picture because I think that would be super cute and I really want to see how it turned out. The Concerts That Made Us podcast said that they got to interview a band that were one of their favorites when they were younger. That sounds so exciting. I can't wait until my first official interview. I know I kind of did one back on the Todd or Bear Attack story, but that was kind of through email, not really actually physically talking to the person. Anyways, that is great. I am so happy for you guys. Let's see. History at Max said that they were able to get all of the books that they needed for their classes and that they were all children's books. So they said that they look like the most immature university student. I don't think that's true. I'm sure that everybody knows that there are degrees for child educators and those kind of things. So I really don't think you look like you were an immature university student. All right. What do we have on Twitter? It looks like the only one here is from Everyone Dies in Sutherland. This one actually made me really laugh. They said their six-year-old asked them where babies come from, and they had to give him a factual, of-age-appropriate answer that involved special cuddles and seeds being planted like we do in the garden. He said that his response was, that sounds easy enough. I dread the day when I have to explain to my children the birds and the bees. Good on you. I like these analogies. I might have to steal them in the future. Thank you for sharing all your ups and downs and goods and bads from your week slash weekend. Now let's get started with tonight's episode. Stop 13, South Carolina. In North Augusta, South Carolina, on the night of November 21st, 1985, Nikki Arrington tucked his stepson Jeremy into bed. In the early morning hours of November 22nd, Jeremy's biological mother, Donna, came home after working a late shift at her job. After sleeping for several hours, she woke up to make coffee for her husband before he left for work. On her way back to her room, she stopped to check in on her four-year-old son. He had a habit of burying himself underneath the covers as he slept, so she assumed when she saw a heap under the covers that it was him. She went back to sleep for a couple more hours and was later woken up by the cries of her seven-month-old daughter. After tending to her, she realized that Jeremy wasn't in the house. She began to search for him inside and outside with no luck. So she called the Aiken County Sheriff's Office and deputies arrived within the hour. The next-door neighbor told deputies that she saw Jeremy outside at around 8.45 playing near their mailbox. Several articles I found stated that he was waiting for the bus even though there wasn't school that day, while others say that he was seen playing with a family dog and had his bike with him. The dog was in the house when Donna noticed that he was missing. Donna told deputies that it was very unusual for Jeremy to be outside because of the severe weather. 
She showed them the shoes and his favorite jacket were still in his room. Sheriff Carol Heath called in all of the off-duty personnel to help with the search of a three-mile radius around his home. There were no signs of Jeremy. They combed through the woods and fields surrounding the Russell Hills area, hoping to find him. The search lasted for several days as volunteers from the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, the South Carolina Wildlife and Marine Rescue Department, volunteer firefighters, and Aiken County community members walked through the muddy bottom of drained ponds and checked every possible area in the surrounding woods. They canvassed the neighborhood and followed up on every lead they received. A helicopter was even brought in to canvass the area overhead. The family was questioned several times and the police conducted polygraph tests that all came back negative. Aiken Standard reporter Fran Chapman Smith responded to the area when news broke over the police scanner. She has continued following this case throughout her career. She stated in an article, There were a lot of cases over the years, but this one captured everyone's attention and everyone's hearts. As a mother now, I can't even fathom waking up and your four-year-old child not being there. Jeremy's biological father, Ray, joined in on the search. He spent all hours of the night calling out his name. In an article in the Aiken Standard on November 27, 1985, he spoke with reporters stating, I walked most of these woods hollering for him myself. Just anybody who hollered for him and he didn't know them, he wouldn't answer. He was shy. Three days after Jeremy was reported missing and searching began, the sheriff's office announced that they believed that he was kidnapped. His family believes it was someone from the neighborhood and that he just didn't wander off. Longtime neighbors of the family, Tony and Lynn Prosser, said that his disappearance scared them so much that until their child was older, they would only let him play in the backyard. They haven't heard from the Arringtons in several years, but say that his case comes to mind often. While they still live in the area, the Arringtons moved away sometime after Jeremy's disappearance and their trailer was taken down. Over the years, the Aiken County Sheriff's Office received numerous tips that never went anywhere. Flyers were posted throughout town, and a reward was offered for any information in Jeremy's disappearance. The sheriff's office reported in November of 2020 that the case is still an ongoing investigation, even though there haven't been any leads in several years. They did confirm that until his case is solved, it will continue to be an ongoing investigation. They keep a DNA file on his case to assist in the investigation and his case is listed on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website. Captain Eric Abdullah stated in an article that the challenge of this case is that it's been under investigation since the 1980s, and the assigned investigators were not employed with the agency when the case was initiated, and they are having to work off of case notes from the original investigation and pick up where the investigators left off. Anytime a child goes missing... It has a great and lasting impact on a community. But as long as someone cares, there is always hope. We hope that someday the final answers will come, not for us, but for Jeremy and his family. 
Child serial killer William Ernest Downs was a possible suspect in Jeremy's disappearance. He was questioned several times in regards to Jeremy's case, but denied ever being involved. He was convicted of killing 10-year-old James Porter and 6-year-old Keenan O'Malley. He was executed by lethal injection in 2006. Authorities have never ruled him out as being involved in Jeremy's disappearance. Jeremy was last seen wearing either pajamas or jeans and a t-shirt with no shoes. He had blonde hair and hazel eyes. May 12th of 2021 would be his 40th birthday. If you know anything regarding Jeremy's disappearance, you are encouraged to contact the Aiken County Sheriff's Office. If you're sick of having to wade through two hours of fluff in order to get a few good takeaways, tune into the Art of Manliness podcast. They glean and distill the very best insights from the world's experts in self-improvement, philosophy, practical skills, history, and more. And they also do so in under an hour without all the eye-roll-inducing filler. You'll walk away from every episode of the AOM podcast with an actionable insights you can start implementing today to improve your life. They recently surpassed 700 episodes. And here are a couple of my favorites. Episode 358, called The Stranger in the Woods, The Story of the Last Hermit. Now, I have always found hermits to be super fascinating because... I just have to be around people. So the fact that somebody was able to survive 27 years in the woods by themselves just amazes me. They go into every single detail about this guy's life, why he decided to become a hermit, what it looks like to be a hermit in today's world, the benefits of solitude, how this guy was eventually caught, and what he's up to now. Another episode you should check out is episode number 702, One Man's Impossible Quest to Make Friends in Adulthood. Now, as a 31-year-old woman, I know how hard it is to make friends, and I didn't realize that it was the same for guys. They talk about the consequences of loneliness and how to fix that, how to cope, how to find friends when you're a couple how COVID has actually helped to strengthen friendships. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast players. Stop 14, Florida. In 1978, 25-year-old Patricia Elaine Action had recently gone through a divorce with her husband, William Woodward, and moved back into her parents' home in Tarpon Springs, Florida, until she could save up enough money to get back on her feet. She had recently gotten a job as a waitress at the K-Pok Tree Inn, one of the most over-the-top restaurants in the country at the time. On the morning of May 27, 1978, as Patricia was leaving the house, she told her parents that she was going out for drinks with friends after work and to not worry. She had just gotten her first paycheck and wanted to go out to celebrate. Before meeting friends at the Ramada Inn Lounge in Clearwater, she stopped by her brother's house, but he wasn't home. She left him a message stating that she would stop by again later. 
She was at the lounge for roughly 30 minutes, sipping on her first drink, when she excused herself to the restroom. She took her purse with her. She never returned and was never heard from again. When Patricia didn't return home the next morning, her parents went to the Kapok Tree Inn to find out if anyone had heard from her. After talking to everyone at her work, her parents reported her missing at the local police station. Four days after her disappearance, her white Chevrolet Malibu was found abandoned on US-19 in Tarpon Springs. Some articles state that the vehicle was located in the parking lot of the Days Inn, while others state that it was found on the side of the road. When police arrived, they discovered a large amount of blood inside the vehicle. It was splattered on the passenger seat, the floorboards, and the car keys. There was enough blood to indicate that someone had sustained a severe injury, and it was possibly fatal. It also appeared that someone had attempted to clean up, but decided to give up. The blood was later tested, but back in 1978, the only thing that they could determine that the blood was type O positive, the same as Patricia's. The only fingerprints that were found inside the vehicle were Patricia's and those of her family, and the only other item found were her shoes. Police began a large search of the area using helicopters, off-road vehicles, and several hundred volunteers. They searched the woods near where her car was found, the area around Lake Tarpon, Dundon Beach, and areas south toward Clearwater. Tarpon Springs and Clearwater Police combined forces to work the case together. Unfortunately, no evidence was found. In an article in the Evening Independent written on February 10, 1979, Clearwater Captain Al Valusi states, We checked and didn't turn up any knowledge of anyone who had been bothering her or any other problems, but we have to suspect foul play. She had money with her, but we feel robbery was not involved. In that same article, Tarpon Springs Police Chief Blaine LaCorris states, We just have not come up with anything, but we're not giving up. She's out there somewhere. It's just that there are thousands and thousands of places where she could be. Police did name a potential suspect in the case, a co-worker named Mike Swearingen. Chief LaCorris described him as a real weirdo. He and Patricia had gone out several times. Patricia's sister told police that she had recalled that her sister stated that she wanted to distance herself from him because he was possessive and thought that he and Patricia were an actual couple. Mike claims that he was on his way back from Miami on the night of her disappearance and that he was not with a group of friends at the Ramada Inn Lounge. He told the police about dreams that he had about killing a girl. He described the locations where he left those bodies, and the police searched them to no avail. Police questioned him for as long as they could, but they were unable to hold him due to the lack of evidence. Shortly after this, he showed up at her parents' house and made a very odd claim. He told them that he saw a man driving her car with her in it and that he was going to go find her. A little while after Patricia's disappearance, Mike moved out of Florida and fell ill. Police went to speak to him, hoping that he would confess, but he continued to deny any involvement. 
The friends that were with her the night that she disappeared were all questioned by the police. They never attempted to go look for her after she didn't return, and they never showed any interest in insisting with the investigation. Patricia's ex-husband moved to Ohio after their divorce. He also never contacted the family about the case. Police did investigate him, but again, nothing ever came of it. Her family was devastated by all of this, and her parents ended up divorcing three years after her disappearance. Patricia's sister was hospitalized due to the grippling emotion that she held in regarding her sister's disappearance. It appeared as though law enforcement wanted so desperately to find her as they exhausted all the leads they had. However, it seems that the case went cold in 1979, and I couldn't find any other information indicating that this is still an active case. Patricia was last seen wearing a beige jumpsuit with pink, green, and yellow stripes. She was carrying a brown shoulder purse. She had brown hair and blue eyes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Patricia Elaine Action, you are encouraged to contact the Clearwater Police Department. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode of the Cold Case Road Trip. Please enjoy this promo from my friends, Nick, Moe, and Mikey, at the Deep Dark Truth Podcast. I'm Mo. I'm Chip. And I'm Mikey. And we're the hosts of the Deep Dark Truth Podcast. An allegedly hilarious podcast that investigates bizarre true crimes, conspiracies, mysteries, and the cryptid dating scene. Because local cryptids want to meet you. Call me Bigfoot, 313-355-3411. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. And keep searching for, for the, the deep, deep, dark, dark truth. truth. I hate when you guys do that. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, at The Murder Bucket, on Facebook, at Bucket Murd, and on Instagram at Murdbucket. Bucket.